Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, in a packed episode from C21's Content LA, we hear from MGM's Chris Britton and Michael Wright about their content strategy for US cable net and streamer MGM+. And from ITV's Sasha Breslau, Banerjee's Matt Creasy and RTE's Dermot Horan about their expectations for this year's Writer's Strike hit LA screenings. C21's Content LA got underway yesterday and continues today at the Fairmont Century Plaza, alongside the LA screenings Independence, ahead of the major studio's own screenings next week. With some among the latter returning to licensing after a period of retaining shows to power their own streamers, but at the same time finding themselves in the midst of a US writer's strike, there's plenty to discuss. Among the content LA lineup are execs from CBS, Fox, Universal, Warner Brothers Discovery, Amazon, CAA, and many more. Later on, we'll be hearing from MGM's Chris Britton and Michael Wright about their content strategy for US cable net and streamer MGM. We'll also hear from ITV's Sasha Breslau, Banerjee's Matt Creasy, and RTE's Dermot Horn about their expectations for this year's LA screenings and the impact of the industrial action. But first, C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller and North America Editor Jordan Pinto spoke to me about the key issues at stake and offered their take on how these are likely to play out. Ed, Jordan, thanks very much for joining us. The LA screenings are about to get underway. Ed, just give us a bit of background, if you would, on the LA screenings and what it would have looked like historically, pre-pandemic, pre-streaming both of which have obviously had a major impact. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, the LA screenings, they're always the highlight of the year, really, for the international buying community. Um, back in the day when the business was largely about US programming and who was buying it and who's recommissioning it and what's getting cancelled. And these were the, the headlines that we would be writing at this point in of the year, you know. And uh, it was very much about the shows that were being picked up and presented to the advertising community in the upfronts by the uh, US broadcast networks largely and it was everything was the whole industry was waiting with bated breath to see which shows were getting picked up out of all the pilots and which shows were getting cancelled from last year and that kind of thing and um, it all hinged on what happened in in New York on the in upfronts week and then in the following week in LA all those shows that made it through pilot season would get presented to the international buying community and, and a sort of pitching battles and, and bidding wars would break out encouraged by the studios obviously and uh, it was all about who's getting what and everyone you know kept their cards very close to their chest and 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 uh, didn't want to reveal that they, what they were bidding on until it was in the bag um that changed over the years and more cable shows came in and uh it started you know the whole process of commissioning for, for the whole year rather than just for the full season changed things an awful lot but it was very much even five years ago it was still very much about all the shows that were going to be picked up for the broadcast networks that all changed with streaming because the the studios were keeping their shows for their own direct-to-consumer strategies and, and retaining them for their own international streaming platforms and so the international buyers that came to came to LA were, were finding that they could see pilots, but they weren't available for three years or you know after they'd been on on a streamer in their own territory. And with COVID and everything, it all it all became less relevant to the international market. And the, the LA screenings last year was was uh, was very different in the sense that buyers went into the screening rooms to see shows, and they were Australian shows or UK shows or uh, even in some cases Latin American shows because all the 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 big US products 
product was being retained for those international streamers. So this time around, it's going to be a very different LA screening. It's very interesting. And, and a lot of the chat won't be about the shows. It will be about all the things you've discussed, John, you know, the strike and the impact of the economy and all that kind of thing. And I don't think it's going to necessarily be a very pleasant experience for, for buyers to face, uh, you know, picket lines when they go onto lots. And, and uh, you know, I mean, there's always uncertainty about shows. Um, that's that's part of the process. Is a, is a show that I'm bidding on going to even make it past Christmas? Is it going to survive the, the full season? But this time there's an extra layer of uncertainty. Is the show even going to be made? You know, it might not ever ever start production because of the strike. And even if the strike does get resolved, content is going to be much more expensive. You know, the, the strike could cost the uh, industry a, an awful lot of money as studios, uh, you know, have to absorb uh, the cost of the strike, not just of the writers, but we've got the Directors Guild, we've got the actors as well, their, their agreements are coming to an end. And there's a, a ratings agency called Moody Investor Services. They estimated that the studios are going to face costs of between 450 million and $600 million extra every year because of the impact of the strikes. And who's going to pay for that? It's going to be international buyers that are expected to pick up these shows. So there's the extra uncertainty, extra costs. And for, for a lot of buyers, because of the the, the holdbacks and, and the fact that the shows were taken off the, off the market for the last three or four years, they found new suppliers, even in America. They found new suppliers around the world. Their audiences perhaps have moved on. There's lots of data to suggest that American programming isn't as popular globally as it used to be as as audiences embrace things like uh, non-english language stuff you know the squid game factor the money highs factor all that kind of stuff so you know as the studios suddenly get back to licensing shows around the world they might find that the international buying community has, has moved on let's focus there on the distribution that that last point you mentioned the fact that the streamers the the, the u.s studios have responded to the arrival of, of netflix and amazon the major impact that they've had upon the business by setting up their own services over the past few years and warehousing content they previously would have licensed out to international buyers they've been keeping that within their own boundaries for their own streaming services but we've seen in recent months the fact that they're talking about returning to licensing as, as you mentioned there the fact that they're now having to focus on making those streamers that they've invested so much money in profitable disney's among those that have said that they're going to sort of return to that market paramount's remained in it to a greater or a lesser extent but very significantly um, just recently we've had amazon launching amazon mgm distribution as well which i think caught a lot of people by surprise jordan you spoke to chris ottinger who's heading that up can you talk a little bit about some of the dynamics that have been at play there and what chris had to say yeah uh, th thanks john um, I think it's de definitely an interesting one. Um, for years, people have kind of supposed and said that it would make a lot of sense for the streaming services to begin licensing their originals, primarily um, Amazon and Netflix are the two that they had in mind when they were when they were talking about that. Um, I, I think this makes a lot of sense for Amazon. Obviously, they acquired MGM last year, and they kind of essentially they they bought their way into the distribution business. Um, yeah, I was chatting with Chris Ottinger a couple of weeks ago. Um, MGM 
has more than a thousand international clients now, which are kind of you know all part of the Amazon ecosystem. And so Amazon now plan to funnel some of these these original shows. That uh, that is things like on the TV side, the marvelous marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Goliath and Hunters, um, and then movies like the the, Bor- the Borat sequel or the Tomorrow the Tomorrow War. They're going to start with thirty six shows being sold. It, they're essentially using MGM's um, distribution infrastructure, uh, and they're going to push the um, the Amazon originals through that, um, starting with thirty six, and they will then add add to that. Um, I think it's certainly it's a it's a it's a, a strategic move that is very in keeping with the times. I, I think um, everyone now, <laughs> even Amazon, is saying you know we're not going to leave leave money on the table anymore, and um, we're going to start. And I think they realize they can probably make quite a nice little revenue stream from this. I think when I was chatting with Chris, I asked him about revenue projections, and he obviously he giggled and uh, told me he would not he would not be able to tell me <laughs> any information about that. But um, his argument was this is as much about Amazon being able to kind of provide um, a better service to um, to its existing distribution clients and just get the content further rather than it being a massive uh, a massive money spinner. But I, I think you know the quality of the shows that are coming through the pipeline will be enough to certainly generate a decent amount of revenue. Um, so I think it'll be interesting, and I think obviously Netflix is the main holdout on this front. They, you know, whenever they're asked, whenever Ted Sarandos or Reed have been asked about the um, potential of licensing, they've still said it's not really a, that something that they plan to do. Um, I know Ted Sarandos has talked a bit about doing, you know, things like Fast over the past six months. He's mentioned it. So whether Netflix has a, another plan to even going to be make things free and, and monetize in some kind of fast environment now that they are in the ad space, that is, I suppose would be a potential for them. But yeah, it'll, it'll, I think a lot of people will have eyes on um, how the Amazon originals perform um, when they're being licensed now. And Ed, you mentioned the fact that even though the US studios might be looking to return to the licensing business as far as the LA screenings goes, they might find that international buyers aren't even able to get on the lots that they normally do business out of. So the US writer's strike is going to have a major impact on this event. How do you think that's going to be playing out? And uh, what are some of the key issues that are at stake here? What are the, the, the key sticking points in the negotiations? Well, I think, yeah, the getting onto the lots is going to be difficult and nobody wants to cross picket lines in order to do business. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be uh, pleasant in that sense. And I think the studios will be having a lot of activities and events out, out of the lots in restaurants and, and theatres and things like that. But even so, you know, I, th- I think a graduation ceremony is going to be picketed by the WGA because uh, David Zaslav is in attendance. So, uh, you know, I think I think that there'll be a lot of a lot of that. And I don't think um, I don't think that the buyers will necessarily have as much uh, of a, an enjoyable experience here in L.A. As, as, as they would normally. I think I mean, one of the big issues is A.I., obviously. AI in terms of writing scripts and writing scripts in the style of certain writers and that kind of thing, the legal ownership of those scripts, the impact of AI generated scripts on on uh, actual human writers i think that's the that's one of the big sticking points and i think as we go forward you know ai has been bubbling around in the background for many years um, but as we go forward it's going to become more and more uh, central more and more divisive and um, much more of a key component in in the creation of content and uh, the legal issues and the industrial issues around that are going to be unfolding as we as we go through not just at the early screens this year but probably for the next quite a few years 
Um, I think one of the things that is going to be a hot topic among conversations, as well as sort of the impact of the strike and whether the shows that are being screened, if they are going to be screened, will ever get made, is um, the boost of co-production. Um, I think uh, I think uh, a lot of companies are coming to LA not necessarily just to acquire shows but as the, as they used to but to bring shows with them to to sell into America you know the LA screenings is is not just a one way street anymore it used to be about getting your piece of americana to take home with you and it's now increasingly and equally about taking your shows into America as well and a lot of the conversations that are going to be happening will be about well I, I might not be able to get my my american show from you but you can certainly get your australian or canadian or uk show from me and so co-production conversations will be happening and there's a whole load of new players entering the co-production space that previously weren't involved for, you know us networks for, you know broadcast networks for for instance up until now they've haven't really dabbled in co-production that much um because they're, they they haven't had to they're pretty much self-sufficient but i don't think that's the case anymore and i think a, a lot of the big international production companies are, are having conversations that they never used to have with the, with the us broadcast networks about copro and similarly, a lot of the AVOD platforms that um, uh, have relied on uh, catalogue plays or non-exclusive deals with distribution companies are now getting mature enough to enter into the original content space. And an easy way to do that is via co-production. So I think a lot of AVOD players are now conversing with the international production community about boarding projects earlier and earlier. Um, I think it's probably a little bit early for fast channels to do that, but certainly AVOD. Um, an interesting question is now, over the SVOD players in the co-production space because if, for instance, Amazon has now got an international distribution operation, as uh, Jordan's just outlined, what what are they in terms of um, uh, co-productions? If, if, if somebody was to co-produce with Amazon now, would they would Amazon say, well, we obviously want the rest of the world to, to feed our uh, uh, an international distribution operation? And so that, that there's always been a bit of a question about those international streamers, particularly in the SVOD space, getting into co production because they, they they obviously want all rights largely but now they've got another reason to want all rights because they're feeding their nascent uh, distribution operation uh, so i think there's going to be lots of conversations and, and it just goes to show how the la screenings has evolved not just uh, to come and buy american shows Jordan, as North American correspondent, you've obviously been tracking things very closely in terms of the strike from the US um, and Canada as well. So, you know, some of the things that Ed touched on there, David Zaslav, for example, being uh, uh, picketed at an event and uh, executive pay, his in particular, was among the issues that have also been called out in this strike. And also the fact you alluded to it, Ed, there as well, that the, the stream is sort of in the way that they've changed the uh, working models, the relationships that, you know, writers have with commissioners. I mean, that's the fundamental issue at heart here, isn't it? Some people are saying that the streamers are reaping what they've sown in terms of the way that they've sort of shaken up the business. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, yeah, I think very broadly, and, you know, I'm not, I won't go too far into it because it's kind of an, an all day discussion, but just some of the very broad things that the writers are, um, some of the, the main issues that they find are particularly the use of mini rooms. Like in, in the old model, you would be staffed on a, on a 22 episode a year show um, as the streaming model has kind of taken hold and those episode orders have gotten shorter. Um, and also writers are kind of locked into slightly longer contracts 
contract as well. Um, it makes it more difficult for them to be able to essentially make as much money. And like, if uh, I don't know whether it's just my Twitter, but however the algorithm feeds me now, almost all I see is is strike strike related things. And but you see a lot of stories from writers about writers that made a lot more money five years ago. And you know, it's it's just a it's just a kind of symptom of of how the the, the, the model has changed. I think one of the big the big issues is the residual structure in in streaming in the network model um, writers were you know there was a, a much more generous let's say um, residual structure every time a show was um, re-aired or retransmitted now it's not counted in the same way w- within streaming and obviously streamers are let's say slightly less transparent about exactly you know who, who is watching and how they're watching and it's also something the streamers are not willing to part with in the context of this of these negotiations so basically they don't make as much money on the residuals either so th- th- those are just a a couple of the uh, the main sticking points. Um, I'm what, I, what I'm hearing, and it kind of ties in with, or will have an impact on what Ed was saying about how some of the US players now will be having different discussions with some of the people that are coming into town for the LA screenings. Um, I, th- I think people are seeing more anger in the system or anger among the writers than even that they thought might come out when this strike began. Um, and like I, I'm hearing people talking about potentially seeing the strike go until December. I think there are a lot of different pieces at play and what, when when the DGA and um, SAG after the the actors union went once they start negotiating as well a few different dominoes could fall in a few different ways but certainly I was speaking to a writer yesterday um, and they said you know a, a December strike isn't inconceivable like such is the level of uh, discontent and I think that if 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 the studios if the US studios are getting that sense they are certainly going to be thinking you know, that that would really disrupt the pipeline I, I think originally people assumed that the, the strike might be a short one you know four weeks six weeks, eight weeks, it definitely looks like it's going to go longer now. So I I do think the streamers and the studios, even though some suggested that they were kind of happy to, to have had to have had the strike happen because they're able to, you know, cut costs. They were looking to reduce the number of shows anyway. They're they're able to force majeure some of the very expensive um, overall deals that they have. I think now the, the studios and streamers might be thinking, okay, we need to start really thinking about slightly more contingency planning. That's an interesting point. Yeah, there's been suggestions that actually the strike is coming at quite a good time as far as the studios are concerned, and quite a bad time in terms of you know bargaining power for the writers because the fact is is that the studios have been plowing so many millions, billions into streaming and and so many shows i think there were over 600 scripted shows out of the us last year more content than anybody could ever watch surely the studios are going to be quite happy to let this rumble on for quite a while and let them have a pause and reset and at the same time they're obviously making huge cutbacks we've seen paramount announcing 25 percent of their us staff going disney's laying off 7,000 people. Is there a suggestion that they might be quite happy to, to let this run till December, even more? December, letting it run to December sounds long to me. I think mm. it's a good question. I, I, I'd certainly think, and all the all the streamers and studios have said it, like uh, Ted Sarandos, I think David Zaslav and uh, Bob Bakish have, have all said on um, conference or investor calls recently, we've got enough content in the can, you know, to really ride this out for a long time. Part of that, I feel, is kind of negotiating in public. Um, obviously, they're going to say that. They're not going to tell they're not going to publicly say you know we're, we're concerned that our pipeline will be disrupted but I, I do think there is probably a lot of um there's probably a lot of truth to the idea that especially netflix has got so much content in the can like instead of release 
releasing, I don't know, 10 new shows a week or however many shows they release a week, that you could probably halve that. Like people already say that there are too many shows being released on Netflix all the time um, to, to keep up. Like if they if they staggered that, I think they could certainly ride this out for a while. There are a lot of a lot of deals with very pricey deals. I was chatting to the head of an independent studio recently and um, he was saying so the overall deals that they were signing maybe two or three years ago, those deals now, the, the value of that deal today is probably half or a third or so today you would pay probably half or a third what you would have paid two or three years ago so for them to be able to um to cancel those deals is certainly going to be a, a big like important financially as they are looking to cut costs i think the u.s studios are in a much better position than they were last time around you know the u.s audience now is much more used to international content it almost welcomes international faces in terms of the actors that they haven't seen before yeah, you know, the, the more you know, some of the market is embracing subtitled shows. You know, I think I think that allows the studios, the, the networks, and the platforms to um, bring in international content. No matter, you know, even if even if they have got tons of uh, US shows in the can, as 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 all those um, uh, studio heads have, have, have repeatedly said, you know, I think I think the market uh, is, is, is has changed an awful lot, and and those studios have got a lot of more in, uh, relationships with international writers i know some of the writers skills around the world in particular britain australia and canada have said they're going to support the wga in its uh, industrial action but you know the, the relationships that the studios have with other production companies that they either own around the world that aren't striking that aren't um, under the wgi regulations but also just the market around the world as well you know last time around the production levels around the world weren't as high and the production values of the shows weren't as high nowadays uh, everyone around the world is making shows that are of a similar quality to um, um, glossy American content. And we've seen that recently with breakout hits from far-flung corners of the world. And so, you know, they're all up, you know, all available to buy and pipe into America, even if the supply lines of American shows dries up. So I think the, the US studios are in a much stronger position. And, and as as we've discussed, there might even be some financial upsides to uh, a hiatus in production, just as we are embracing economic headwinds and um, all that kind of stuff that's been a hot topic in terms of the rising talent costs and the rising production costs, particularly of scripted. Uh, so I think American audiences are going to get used to seeing more international faces, more international content, more unscripted content. Uh, as we saw with what's been going on with the CW, they're just shipping in shows from uh, Anglophone countries uh, like you know Australia, Canada, the UK. So I think that might we might start seeing that with other US networks. And unscripted, the beneficiary, or at least widely regarded as you know the beneficiary of the the last strike that happened, reality shows in particular. Uh, is that something that you think will see play out again this time round? Um, I, I can take that one um just just one thing i wanted to throw in i i think a potentially interesting point about the writer strike is will this spur some kind of screenwriting uprising globally and i know each each screenwriting community is slightly different but like i was speaking to french writers when i was at series fest recently you know canadian writers a lot of them empathize completely with some of the issues that um that are being felt in the u.s so i just wonder whether um this kind of almost grassrootsy um kind of movement will spur others to try and force change in their own markets 
Um, I don't think we've seen that yet, but I just thought it was, uh, I think it's a point that could uh, become relevant uh, as we as we go forward. And on the unscripted front, all the uns- it's interesting. Um, I think prior to the strike, everyone assumed that this potential strike would take a similar form to the one 15 years ago and that unscripted would see some kind of boom period. From the unscripted uh, producers I've spoken to, none of them sound particularly optimistic about the idea that there is going to be any kind of unscripted boom. Um, I think especially in the US market, um, actually Ampere analysis put out some data recently which showed that um, over the past nine months, um, there were 151 fewer um, unscripted shows commissioned than in the nine months, in the same nine month period a year prior. Um, and that's been to do with all sorts of you know changes, primarily the Warner Brothers um, discovery merger and all the, and the fallout of that. But, but I, I think for the most part, none of them seem to think, none of the unscripted producers seem to be um, of the mind currently that there's going to be a big uptick in unscripted, um, which I think is quite quite interesting because it seems to stand to reason that that will be the case, but none of the unscripted producers actually think it will be the case. Jordan Pinto and Ed Waller. ITV Head of Content Acquisition Sasha Breslau spoke to Karolina Kaminska about what she's shopping for at the screenings and the uncertainties that remain around what rights the studios will make available as well as whether any scripted series will actually get made. Keen to to chat to you actually, Sasha, because it's been a while since we last spoke. Here in LA now, um, what are you looking for at the LA screenings this year? What are your content needs and is there anything specific you're after? Uh, Yes, obviously all of this is subject to what's going to happen with the writer's strike, which is the big unknown. I know that's one of your later um, questions. Um, But in terms of what our focus is at the moment, so I would say it's premium limited drama series of, say, six to 12 eps uh, with high profile, marketable talent, So shows that we can premiere on ITVX, but that would also work for ITV1. And so the examples of this would be the 12, which is obviously currently up on ITVX, and then Love and Death, which is the HBO Max series with Elizabeth Olsen, which we'll be launching later on in the year in the autumn. Um, We're not looking for procedurals or longer running network series. And then the other area that we're also interested in is high quality drama and comedy that appeals to our lighter viewers and also what we refer to as our mainstreamers. So younger, upmarket, um, can be male viewers, but also female as well, and shows which will complement our classic US box sets. So these are all up on the platform now, but things like One Tree Hill, Arrow, Gotham, 30 Rock, Parks and Recreation, Dawson's Creek, so I suppose some uh, examples that I can give you would be upcoming CoPro Port, um, which is our um, ITVX original with Stan in Australia, and that's starring Matthew Fox and Sean Penn. And then other shows which are already up on the platform would be things like Letter Kenny and then Astrid and Lily Save the World. So those are our kind of two key areas of focus for the screenings and sort of more generally outside of screenings, actually. And how does it work with ITVX now? Are you acquiring and commissioning for digital first with ITVX in mind first? Or is it for linear, everything is, you know, for linear and streaming? Or, you know, is it on a case by case basis? I think I'd probably say more the latter case by case. I mean, we are very much actively commissioning and acquiring for ITVX. Um, but that's not to say that we're not still doing the same for all the channels. So the reality is that a lot of what we're commissioning and acquiring will have a life 
on linear as well. Um, but obviously, <laughs> given the kind of capacity of the platform, streaming platform versus the channels, not everything will go out on the channel. Okay. And what sort of demand are you seeing for US content at the moment? And has that demand changed? Has it increased or decreased? I mean, from my perspective, and I sort of can really only speak for ITV, I would say that US content is still very much sought after. Um, but I think it's really noteworthy that content from other territories, such as Australia, the UK, Canada, um, has definitely seen kind of boost in its appeal. Um, you look at things like Colin from Accounts from last year going to the BBC. We picked up The 12, which is actually an Australian remake of the Dutch format. Um, and I think, you know, you look at US studios investment in local production companies and then including their lineup as part of the LA screenings, which obviously happened last year in part because of production sort of timelines being affected post during the pandemic. But I think that's also testament to the fact that we've now seen kind of the appeal of international shows to to buyers. Um, and it's not just so, you know, obviously a lot of that is linked to do with the SVODs and how well things like Squid Game, for instance, have worked outside of its home territory. But I think it's a much more global market. So absolutely, you know, great US shows are still very much in demand. Um, we're buying them as are lots of our competitors. But I think it's interesting the extent to which it's not just all about the US content now. And so returning to the the, the writer's strike, um, what impact is that having on the market and is it impacting any of your shows currently so it's a good question it's one that I think it's quite hard to answer at this stage for us because we don't really know what the full impact's going to be yet I mean certainly what I'm reading in the press indicates that it is having a detrimental impact on returning series as well as new sort of new orders so you know I think like some of the biggest shows that have been affected are things like Stranger Things and Yellow Jackets I read somewhere that Sex Lies of College Girls which is one of ours that we have on ITVX and ITV2 is also being impacted. I mean, I think anything that's really US produced is now going to be sort of experiencing challenges. Um, so definitely it, it's a concern and one that you, you would imagine is going to be very limiting for any full series orders. Um, and you can also look back to what happened in 2008 during the last strike. And, you know, we picked up a few shows that year and certainly one of those was cancelled um, sort of early on in its run. So, yeah, it's definitely concerning. But I think until we actually go out there, speak to our partners, get a sense from them of what's going to happen and what the timelines might be, it's a bit early to really kind of understand the full impact of it. I think one of the consequences will be that it will definitely increase demand um, for other shows produced in different territories or those that are you know, fortunate enough to be in post-production already. Yeah, well, my, my next question was going to be, could it force you to, to look elsewhere for content? Yeah, I mean, yes, I suppose it will certainly. I mean, I think we're doing that anyway. So I suppose force is maybe a bit sort of like, yeah, overstating it from my perspective, because we're already very actively looking and acquiring from other places. But it will absolutely, I suppose, exacerbate that, I guess, because we'll be more reliant on shows which are coming out of other territories. And um, when when the US, big US studios started launching their own streaming platforms, we began to see that they were holding back content for those platforms. Platforms. They're now starting to license their shows out to the rest of the market again. How does that change things? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, what's happened with the studios sort of Disney and now Fox also sort of screening and distributing again. Um, I think, again, I'm going to have to wait and see because 
certainly, you know, those few years where Disney were sort of holding on to all of their IP, you know, we were not screening with them. We weren't seeing any of the Fox shows. This year, Disney are screening. But what I'm not clear on at the moment is not simply what shows they're going to be screening, because we haven't really got oversight of any of the schedules yet. But actually, crucially, what are the rights that are going to be available? Because obviously, my assumption is that they're still going to want to protect the pipeline of content, their own IP for Disney Plus, um, which I'm sure will vary from territory to territory. But obviously, it's very well established in the UK, and it's in the UK is an important market. So it you know remains to be seen. So it definitely had an impact. It's I think really hopeful and optimistic from our perspective that there's now potential for those studios you know for even the likes of Amazon to be potentially licensing some of their originals via MGM but we don't have concrete information yet as to which shows what content and what rights and that's you know fundamental so we'll have to wait and see. And how do you feel about buying second window rights um, you know to a show that was previously available in the UK on a platform like Prime Video for example now it's become available to you are you interested in it or are you concerned that you know your viewers a lot of your viewers might have already seen it. I think it's a case by case basis. And look, you know, there's still a lot of appetite and affection for either watching or re-watching classic shows. Um, so to, to a large degree, I think something having been out already isn't necessarily a bad thing, actually. And of course, depending on the nature of the VOD platform, the SVOD platform it's been on, you know, it may not have had all the exposure that having it on an AVOD, FVOD platform such as ITVX would be able to give it. So, you know, I think there's, for me, a real opportunity there in terms of finding new audiences, but also allowing viewers who might have seen it previously to rewatch it. I mean, I've certainly gone back and rewatched things like ER and One Tree Hill and The West Wing, you know, more than once. So I think I, I wouldn't say it's off-putting. I think it really depends on the show. If we were looking for something that we would categorise as a first-run, you know, ITBX premiere, then of course you wouldn't necessarily put a kind of an SVOD original in that bracket. But equally, I wouldn't regard it as off-putting at all, um, given that we are, you know, offering a range of scripted shows both you know kind of I'm going to call them library even if they're more recent but kind of established ones as well as brand new ones okay and um we're also in the middle of a global economic decline how is that affecting the market um so this is one of those questions that I find quite hard to answer but so I suppose my top line thought is that I suppose it's some, somewhat precipitated by the, the economic crisis, but I think this might have happened naturally anyway, is that we're maybe we have got to that point where it's the end of so-called peak TV. I mean, there's been obviously a golden era. There's been more shows produced than we've ever known. But obviously, with recent announcements, you know, with sort of Disney cancelling originals, Netflix cancelling originals, I mean, this is not a new strategy. Obviously, networks have all always taken stock and sort of you know decided which shows are going to return and which shows aren't but I think that also set against the backdrop of you know some of the SVODs withdrawing from certain territories obviously certain degree of consolidation 
I think my view is that there's still demand for a very diverse and broad range of scripted content, but with sort of key players either withdrawing from markets or kind of cutting back due to losses, I think it is a much tougher market now. Um, I was reading the Liberty Global Chairman's prediction of ultimately four to five entertainment platforms moving to the middle and surviving and the rest getting swallowed up. So, you know, sort of likes of Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix still sort of being, you know, kind of really key players. But then some of the smaller ones like AMC Plus ultimately not surviving. And I think that's going to be the case. Um, and I think that started already. Uh, and I, you know, the kind of the economic crisis is, you know, very much the backdrop to that. So, yeah, I think it is having an impact. I do think there is a really great opportunity and a, like a, a place in local markets, territory by territory, for platforms which are historically rooted in that place. So I think, you know, I don't see in the UK, for instance, the likes of ITV, BBC, Channel 4 being affected because we offer a very distinct type of output to our audiences. So I think we will weather the storm. And I think our USP in terms of being, you know, an AVOD service and being free to consumers is incredibly strong and it's already resonating with audiences. So, you know, yes, it's tough out there, but I think I would like to think that we have certainly what it takes to weather that. Do you see there being a situation where you might have to swap original commissions for acquisitions? Um, I mean, we do both already. So I don't think we see necessarily as one being a substitute for the other. Obviously, acquisitions have always been a cost-effective way of having, you know, more original content, um, more first-run content on your network. But I think actually what it enables us to do is provide, you know, breadth and variety. So, you know, the commission content that we do is, I think, you know, exemplary and we know really connects with our local audiences. But equally, I think a lot of what we acquire, you know, provides that sort of depth and sort of, I suppose, broad palette of content. And also we know certain things work particularly well with key demographics. So, for instance, like, you know, acquire comedy works really well for, you know, young and quite often male viewers so it's good for targeting specific demographics okay and with respect to commissioning on the whole you know lots of people I'm talking to are discussing this fewer bigger better strategy is that something that that you see as well I mean I don't you know I don't want to speak for the commissioning team strategy um I think everything that we commission we always try to make kind of you know really big and really impressive I think ITV is fundamentally a big mainstream entertainment driven business so nothing that we do is really small scale um even when it's slightly more quirky I think I my, my perspective is that all the commissions that we do strive to be interesting original and you know like really good big shows you know we're not in the business of going after really niche audiences okay and then aside from what we've talked about already what are the main challenges and opportunities that you're seeing in the market in in general so I guess in terms of opportunities I think the way the market's going um, and also with the advent of ITVX, what it's allowing us to now do is get involved in conversations at a slightly earlier stage as well. So, you know, we are now actively looking for pre-buy or co-pro, whatever you want to call them, projects that we can partner with international broadcasters or platforms on. So I think that's a really rich area of opportunity um, that enables us to find things which are distinctive and that we can have as ITVX exclusives and originals in our market. 
market, um, but where we're obviously sharing the risk with somebody else or multiple partners. Um, challenges, I mean, I suppose it's the obvious one that it's ever been thus. It's a competitive market. And, you know, a lot of the content that we're after is the same content that all of our competitors are after too. And those competitors include not just other free-to-air broadcasters, but of course, um, the VOD platforms as well. And, you know, it's interesting because, of course, you've got the likes of Amazon having Freebie. So, you know, we we operate predominantly in the free space, um, but obviously they're in that sort of area as well. So then it becomes a kind of conversation about how you can window rights and um, be effective in that regard. Um, I mean, again, I sort of see that as an opportunity because unlike, say, for instance, Sky, who have an incredible slate of output and, you know, their acquisition strategy and, you know, the kind of the HBO app but deal is extraordinary and rich but I think for Sky you know by virtue of the type of business they are they need to take all rights and be all consuming whereas we can be more flexible and partner with other channels broadcasters platforms so I think that makes us quite an attractive proposition for a license or for someone who's selling their content um but yeah absolutely it's it's competitive it always has been I don't think that's changed there's just new players kind of you know coming to the marketplace and so looking ahead to the rest of this year and next what are your main goals and ambitions at ITV (laughs) buy more great content (laughs) stuff that I want to watch and get obsessed with um yeah I mean honestly it's as simple as that just to kind of do more of what we're doing and build on what we've started so far with the launch of ITVX and you know, find shows which our audiences will love and want to kind of come back to and watch and rewatch and talk to their friends about. Sasha Breslau speaking with Karolina Kaminska. Banerjee writes Executive Vice President of Sales, Co-Productions and Acquisitions, Matt Creasy, among the speakers at Content LA Today, gave Neil Beatty his take on the impact of the writers' strike, particularly at a time of growing economic pressure and the opportunities the situation may even open up. So how are you doing? Are you looking forward to LA screenings? Do you think it's going to be a bit of a surreal kind of event in that it's happening against the backdrop of this this writers' strike, which has only just started? I mean, obviously it's the topic on everyone's on everyone's lips. And um, how do you think it will affect you in your job directly? Well, it's a it's a kind of a, a continually changing scenario, really. I mean, for us on our day to day, not as much as people would think, because you know our business obviously sits outside the US. We have all our production companies in the US which are all unscripted so we'll see what happens in the coming time with you know is there more commissions or anything like that because it's all a question of how long you know how long does it last but the the certainly the the general impression which is not Banerjee related but just in general feeling is that a lot of people I'm talking to is that the studio's been preparing for this for quite a while so there's a lot of content that's stockpiled so it's not suddenly this thing or suddenly the phone's ringing going we've got a gap what's going to happen tomorrow um, it's really a question of how long does it go on and what's that mean in the later months of this year and actually going into 2024 um, we are out with projects that will be launching in 2024 anyway so those discussions are ongoing whether that impacts that and influences that time will tell but uh, really in the end there's not going to be a situation yet where anybody's ringing up saying we need a show for tomorrow they're just that's just not the scenario they've 
they've either put a lot already in the bank or there's a lot of unscripted already produced. So I think it's a period of time yet where they will be okay. And this is just personal opinion. This, again, it's not company sort of thought. But the longer it goes on, the more we, we will see what, what it does. But um, for now, for us, it's, it's buyers are going to buy what works for them still within creative solutions anyway. Um, and that's where we're still at. Sure. But I mean, if, if it does run to the longer term, because I mean, there does seem to be a lot of areas where the writers and the studios just have no common ground whatsoever. Agreed. Yeah. Maybe later in the year, it might become a seller's market <laughs> where, you know, they will be looking to buy the kind of content that they would normally produce themselves. Well, what, what we'll see, certainly on the unscripted spaces, what we'll see is um, you'll see shows which might have been scheduled this summer might start moving into the fall. So you'll see scheduling changes. I think that's what will start happening. And uh, look, there's no question that if there's gaps appearing next year more and more, and there's companies from outside the US who are bringing premium drama into the marketplace that pitching for co-productions, it might give some more opportunities. But we're, we're, we're coming from a position at the moment where it's quite a challenging market anyway. So we're still in that world at the moment. Sure. I think you mentioned there are new players getting into the co-production space. I mean, do, who did you mean by that? Do you mean like um, AVOD or do you mean US broadcasters? Um, I think there's there's green seeds in AVOD um, that they may be more interested in some first run scripted. They haven't pulled the trigger yet, but I think it's a natural progression. So relationships are strong with all of those sort of partners. And I think at some point you'll see some of those start going, okay, maybe we need to start thinking about that. But it's not an avalanche at this point. And I think maybe there's, uh, yes, some of the the bigger players, maybe even network, you know, look, Fox is having conversations and Showtime are having conversations. Now, now it's not that Showtime haven't done a co-production before, but it would have been very rare. And someone like that now is very interested in engaging with companies like ours and having conversations sure do you think that co-pros in non-english language could be could be fading out a little bit well i think there was a i don't know how much was really always there originally you know there was always there's these one-off pieces but you think of the volume of content that's been going in i still think it's an acquisitions market for non-english apart from the spanish language and the spanish language is coming in from places like mexico where we produce and they're maybe getting an originals in mexico or with us netflix in latin america and then being able to do partnerships in the US. So that's where I see more of the, the non-English topper copros. Um, in terms of bringing content from elsewhere in, it's tough. It's it, it's more of an acquisitions market. I mean, look, you get the odd one, like HBO might do one every two years, but generally it's more of a finished program play, really, I see in the non-English speaking. And, you know, there's a business there, etc., but it's just not at the same volume. There was lots of talk of, you know, in the last two years of subtitles are coming and you know, America's ready for it etc and yes there's no question that there's been a, a growth in that but are you going to see on amazon in the us a fully subtitled show no you're not now you might see hybrid shows like tehran's always used as a good example but it's actually mixed language it's a mixed language yes but a full-blown swedish drama going on to prime time somewhere sorry i just don't see it and you also mentioned i think american buyers are perhaps falling out of love with uk content and what what gives you that impression well, well, it's a tricky time at the moment. It's a tricky time. The, sort of, the buyers have condensed and that, that streaming gold rush, shall we say, where they were willing to take lots of chances and look at a lot more stuff coming from outside the US has just 
retracted slightly, you know, just because their budgets have retracted in general and we're seeing cost cutting across the board. I still see the UK as the main driver of content from outside going into the US if they're bringing up international, 100% that. And I still think there's, uh, there's, there's good opportunities for the right shows. I think where there's maybe a, a harder sell at the moment is the sort of what I would call the mid-tier British drama that people like Acorn and Britbox and people like... Uh, uh, Sundance Now and people like that and AMC used to come in on where they've got their own corporate kind of complications at the moment so there's a slowdown in that type of area I find and so there's so much content coming out of the UK that not all of it's going to get in there now I still believe that the premium really talent heavy lead stuff is still a home because talent's really turned back to being a really key thing that's what they need to hang their hat on it's that maybe slightly more domestic UK drama which is maybe finding harder to find homes within the US. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, obviously, for the last few years, we've lived with, you know, the streamers, vertical integration, the, the the walls, fences, all of that kind of thing. I mean, it seems to be slightly shifting the other way. I mean, seeing that Amazon are going to be selling yeah. their third yeah. party content again. What what did you make of that, you know, streamer originals being, being licensed third party? What will that mean for the co-production and distribution market? Well, it's it's, it's a good question. And, and it's and it's slightly unknown. I mean, several thoughts on that, right? And so does that mean if you go to Amazon with a co-production, and we've worked with Amazon very closely. They're very good partners with us. We've done Chloe with them last year. We did Riches. We did David Attenborough's Wild Isles recently. So we're, we're very active with them. Is there a world that for them to do a co-production means that they want to take the rights for MGM? That's a question. Um, now we, and I don't think I'm talking out of school here, generally in agreements that we do on co-productions with streamers like someone like Amazon is that you have a period of exclusivity and then there's normally a holdback which allows, allows some linear window further into the license period of the um, the, the deal with someone like Amazon. Now, with those holdbacks um, expiring, there's still restrictions about how much you can do with a linear, like how much catch-up can you give or something like that. So my question around Amazon is, will they relax all of those restrictions for their own content? And therefore, does that give more opportunity to the content? Or will they have the same restrictions that they imply on people like us, which makes it quite difficult to sell those second windows because a the show still sits on the svod platform so if it's a global svod deal the show's still going to sit on amazon and b what's the restrictions now they've got some really good ip that people might just go do you know what we don't care about the restrictions we just love that show mrs Maisel or something like that you know there's some really good shows so it'd be interesting to see how it plays out also what content are they going to make available like are they going to make lord of the rings available really they spent what three quarters of a billion dollars on that are they are they going to let that be sold i i, I mean who knows but i'd be amazed if you're suddenly going to start seeing that on Channel 4 in the UK in the foreseeable future. Maybe they will. Well, it'll also be interesting to see, as you say, which content is going to be made available, but also what kind of interest is going to be from buyers. Because I was talking to a buyer from Ireland yesterday, and he says, well, you know, we don't just want other companies' hand-me-downs. You know, we we, we want something that we know people haven't already seen on on, their, on an SVOD two years ago. Yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose the flip to that is there's still an argument globally that a lot of people still just watch linear TV, and therefore they won't have had exposure to it and therefore there is still a market out there um, and I think that's true of buyers of hand-me-downs but let's not forget just in the syndication market in the US hand-me-downs has been Friends Modern Family um, The Office and things like that and no one's been embarrassed about taking those on you know as <laughs> hand-me-downs so uh, I think it depends on the show because if you've got the right show it's probably worth taking a punt on Well I mean these these kind of moves into third-party licensing 
and just kind of reinforces how the SVODs have been struggling with their subscribers and they're slashing their budgets. I mean, how do you approach taking co-pro projects to these platforms, given the economic headwinds? We still approach as we always have done. Um, we believe in the projects we're taking to them. We um, Each project, we do a lot of work behind the scenes. We work with our um, producers and obviously the showrunners and creators. So for example, someone like Steve Knight, we're taking out at the moment this town, which he's producing for BBC with Michelle Dockery. So despite those headwinds, we still got to believe in the projects that the projects stand anyway. And yes, there is budget cuts and yes, there's restrictions. And yes, it's, it's, it's harder to get positive answers of all of the above, but it doesn't change our strategy in terms of on big projects taking in. Now, on other projects, which the budgets are maybe slightly less, still respectable budgets, we might actually say at the moment, we might go, well, let's not take it out at script stage. Let's maybe, because we're going to go into production anyway. Um, and this maybe applies to that UK domestic, slightly more domestic show, for example, that we, we're going into production. We're going to production on all of these shows, by the way. We'll take the risk on them. But we think, well, we know in the current marketplace, it's probably going to be really hard to get in at script stage anyway. So on certain shows, we might go, do you know what let's just wait we'll wait let's shoot let's have stuff we can show and then we have something else that we can go in with and then you go to people then at that stage but on other shows we may go do you know what it's steve Knight's a big guy we know you know with the kudos and it's bbc one etc there's enough there that we think we can take that out at this stage to help garner interest so it's project by project but it's probably yes it has maybe affected our thinking on that sort of uk domestic drama where we're like let's Let's just let's just hang and wait because we don't need to rush that take it out now and then and then you'll make with something and look i've been doing this long enough to know that there's peaks and troughs and there have always been peaks and troughs and we're in a bit of a trough at the moment and you just got to ride it out for a bit and then you'll come back again and there's different circumstances that come in that might change people's opinion or maybe the writer's strike goes on you know all these different things so we, we we like to sort of play a patient long game and not panic i would say yeah just kind of waiting for the dust to settle and see how the landscape is then yeah yeah. But yeah. for a big show, we still, and I, I, I've got to be sort of a pain to say, when I'm saying big show, middle, you know, US, they're all good shows on their own merits. It's just that someone like Apple or someone like uh, Amazon or whoever, they're going to be, if you put Steve Knight project on the table, they go, we need to look at that. Whereas um, maybe more of a sort of a Channel 5 domestic sort of drama like that, they'll be like, yeah, we'll take a look at it when it's done once we've got something to look at. Sure, sure. Putting your acquisitions head on, um, is there any kind of content that you're specifically looking out for whilst you're in LA? We're always looking for third party. Um, we have tentacles everywhere. We have outside our own production companies, which is many, we have lots of first looks. We have lots of deep relationships. And there's a lot, of, certainly coming out of the UK, there's a lot of projects out in the ether at the moment that people are taking out. So we, we, we're always, always looking and actively working quite heavily on third party. But we generally don't pick up third party drama from the US um, because the price points are too high. And the, the key aspect that it sounds so obvious, but sometimes people forget is you're picking up US content at those really high price points and your biggest market in the world has gone. So you can't then sell it into the US. So, you know, with content coming from outside the US, you can pay bigger premiums on shows, but you still got the chance that you can get a premium out of the US, whereas vice versa. 
So we tend to really look more, and we're very active with non-scripted that we pick up um, quite a bit of content out of US and Canada, certainly in that factual space, that's factual series space, those sort of engineering shows, travel shows, et cetera. So that's where our third-party acquisitions more busy is in that space. Sure. And how do you think the international appetite is for um, for US content at the moment? I mean, because previously, 10, 15 years ago, every network was dominated by US shows. More recently, it's gone the other way because of the influx of local language shows yeah. and the US studios have been, you know, kind of keeping the content to themselves. I mean, has the appetite changed to an extent where people don't don't need American shows as much as they used to? Yeah, I think it's probably become a bit more of a, a settled scenario now where there's cherry picking of US shows. But I think there's there was a lot of noise a few years ago. US output deals are gone and all this kind of stuff. And I think actually, if you scratch the surface, actually output deals are back in, you know, you still see output deals in Australia, for example. I think there's still, there's still, I mean, you just have to look at Sky in the UK, there's output deals. And so I think the world has settled down in that there's still demand for US content and US network content as well. If you go into France, you go into Germany, there's still a demand for it. So I think there was this sort of America's over and the whole world and look at us. And I think now it's actually much more of a, it's just a hybrid of everything now. There's good US content and there's good local content as well. Sure. You mentioned Australia. You've, you work with a lot of partners out there and there's some great yeah. content coming from down under at the moment. I mean, are US audiences, um, are they willing to take that on board? I mean, obviously we have a commonality of language, but culturally, do, do they understand kind of Australian it's, stuff? It's it's tougher. I have to concede it's tougher. And we, we, we um, through Iron More Shine Australia, scripted label, um, you know, we are producing Australian drama and, uh, and actually we're also working with third parties as well. But there are, uh, again, it goes back to the whole prim thing, you know, if it's an Australian drama with this unbelievable um, star attached and stuff like that, then yes, that gives you a a headwind into the But I think in general on Australian drama, you know, we're very active with people like PBS and the the acorns of this world. And, um, you know, those those, those sort of markets where they are quite interested in Australian drama. I think um, you do get some pushback sometimes on Australian drama though in general you do get a little bit of pushback sometimes but again it depends on the project again and it, it goes back to that 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 scenario that if it's too domestic same with the UK if it's too domestic then it kind of doesn't matter in the end because it's harder to get picked up in the US so I think probably the, the, the takeaway I would say is it's not necessarily because it's Australian or British or whatever it's like is it too domestic or does it have sort of bigger themes that people can relate to sure got your final question just away from content LA and LA screenings and more generally can you tell me a little bit about your business strategy for the rest of this year and into 2024 are there any other any areas that you're focusing on particularly um video game IP for example or anything along those lines we are very actively working within that premium factual space I know we're not the only people who do that but um but we are very active in that space in both dot features or dot minis and that's an area which we as this year goes on we'll have quite a few popping out and that's uh, an area that is definitely a, a, a growth area for us we'd always done a lot of non-scripted always but this in particular area and looking to work with us partners and bring us partners in on on that for example and so that's definitely a a new creative step for us and it's in sort of in step with what some of our production companies are doing um so for example Workerbee did janet last year for a and e which proved very successful for us internationally so that sort of premium factual space is an area which we've added 
into. We brought in Beyond, which we integrated very quickly, and that was bringing a certain amount of that sort of like more male skewing to a factor as well. And with our world in our fast channels and our AVOD and our streaming to the worlds that we, we're doing and self-publishing, that, that really adds another feather in our cap for all of that as well. And we've always been very active in the AVOD world and, and we were very early in the fast world as well. I mean, we're like, I think, 22 or 23 unique channels syndicated like over 100 times now. So we're very active in the fast space. So that's another space that we keep pushing towards. We're working very closely with our producers um, around the world. Um, we sort of sit hand in hand with them in terms of helping, you know, obviously they have their own development, et cetera, but we sort of steer of what we're wanting internationally as well. So helping really on that scripted about where do we see scripted going in the future, et cetera. And growth really, we, we you know, Banerjee's got a very ambitious growth and support from the top, you know, in terms of going out there, finding projects, finding companies, so I think it's uh, it's an exciting exciting time actually at Banerjee, and I'm not just saying that with my corporate T-shirt on. It's like you know it feels it's we're, we're all out there continually looking at opportunities, and that's what's leading to all these different areas of growth. So I think for Banerjee Rights, it's continuing in that premium scripted space, which we've been successful in, but really driving the non-scripted further and further, which is, is big for us. The format business obviously is for us is huge globally and new development, new formats and launches of those. And then in that fast digital space. So I suppose those are the four main growth areas. Matt Creasy speaking with Neil Beatty. RTE Director of Co-Productions and Acquisitions Dermot Horan also spoke to Neil about whether buyers will still be interested in what the studios are selling, having already adapted to the supply squeeze brought on by the launch of their own streamers and changing audience appetites for US shows. Are you looking forward to, to LA? I mean, how many times have you been out? More times than you care to remember? More years than I care to remember. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I have been going for 25 odd years and uh, it's changed dramatically from, I suppose, when I started going out in the, the, the mid to late 90s when it was um, a lot of people were very dependent on US programming, almost entirely dependent for acquisitions on US programming with a bit, little bit of BBC and ITV thrown in. Um, and you would go to the screenings and you would see these pilots it's hot off the press, hot off the upfronts. Uh, and they were all obviously for the free-to-wear American networks in those days. And then you would bid on these shows and these shows would form the backbone of your schedule in terms of your acquired co- component of your schedule for the next 12 months. Um, and then I suppose what, what, what happened was, you know, in the early noughties, we began to see the likes of HBO and Showtime launched. And so you'd see these shows that they might show at the screenings, but weren't free-to-wear network shows. And they were sometimes harder to get, but they had higher production values, you know, things like The Sopranos and Band of Brothers and those kinds of shows. Um, And then, you know, more laterally, then we've had the streamers. And then most recently, we've had the the, the former, you know, studios, you know, who sold internationally, creating their own streamers. Um, And now that seems to have been engineered in a reverse uh, this year because, you know, Disney are screening for the first time in, in a couple of years this year because they were holding back everything for Disney+. Plus. Now, apparently, they're going to be selling us stuff. Was that a surprise to you to see them? Exhibit- no, I mean, I got a I got a sniff of this because they started opening their movie catalogues again. Now, they, they, they were selling a 20th Century Fox movie catalogue, which which they own. So we, we were able to, you know, buy movies like Ford versus Ferrari and West the new West Side Story and, and, and library movies like The Sound of 
music and all that kind of stuff. But they were holding back their Disney and Pixar and Marvel branded movies. And now they're making those available, albeit in kind of finite windows. Um, so I got a sniff that they were going to, you know, make more material available. Um, then they started making uh, available some of their SVOD series from Disney Plus on a second window basis. Uh, but then laterally, we've heard that they're going to make their ABC shows, network shows available on, on a basically first come, first serve basis. Now, I think this is all off the back of, you know, the streamers recognizing that they need to um, to earn revenues again, other than just purely subscription revenues. Yeah, because previously it was a bit of a land grab, wasn't it, for subscribers? And now Wall Street are more interested in revenues and profits, aren't they? So it's a bit of a, an about face, isn't it? I mean, last week we also saw the launch of... Um, um, Amazon Prime, they've got a new division that's going to be selling content outside of the platform as well. Yeah, so that's the old MGM distribution company, you know, uh, run by Chris Ottinger and his team. So they're now going to be selling certainly second windows of Amazon stuff, um, you know, as well as the MGM, you know, titles and, and you know, their their library of, you know, James Bond movies and all that kind of stuff as well. So, yeah, um, and, and I think you're probably going to find that, you know, Warners and in, in due course, Warners and Paramount, they're all going to probably make more of their premium VODs material available, at least on a second window basis. Because, I mean, got, what you got to remember is it's not just that they were earning all this money in the past for when they were making programs for the networks. They then suddenly said, well, not only are you going to make programs for the networks, we're also going to make all this additional programming because we're going to launch a service called HBO Max or Disney+. Plus. So suddenly their, their, their content budget mushroomed at a very time when they denuded themselves of any international third-party sales revenue. So in a way, it was a double whammy. I think they said HBO in 2019 spent $2.5 billion on content and made a $2.5 billion profit. Then they launched HBO Max, and suddenly their content budget by 2021 went up to $7 billion and they made a $3 billion loss. So it's a big swing, isn't it? Definitely. Did you see it coming? Do you, do you, did you have a little bit of a smirk about it? Or No, I mean, you know, one would never... You know, you shouldn't smirk about this. It's all about the development of, of the audiovisual industry, and we're all components in that industry. And we, and we don't... Equally... You know, we we don't. I mean, I saw that the head of Liberty Global was saying the second division of streamers might go under or whatever. I mean, none of us want that because I have a co-production hat on as well, and I mean, we've had great co-production deals with AMC and Sundance and Acorn and all all these other kind of what you would call as the second division of streamers are you know after the top ones. And so, no, it's in all our interests that, that that people prosper. I just think that people went on this ginormous production spending spree and they also possibly inflated the cost of that production. Uh, now, I get it if you're doing something like The Mandalorian and you have an amazing special effects and you're almost shooting a series like a movie. I get that. But if you're doing a contemporary drama, courtroom drama, human drama, or a thriller, these things do not need to cost double what it would have cost the BBC or ITV to make them. But that will, that's kind of what was happening. And so the content budgets went up ginormously. And, you know, obviously... But the same token, the revenue wasn't coming in. Now that this content is going to be available again, have you have you had any uh, kind of um, indication of how much it's going to cost? Have they put the prices up? Subject to negotiation. 
competition. I mean, we as buyers will be making the point that if something has been already available on the likes of Netflix or Disney Plus or um, you know any of these services before, that effectively it is a second run, and therefore we should be paying less. Um, and they may well be you know a year and a half to two years old. So again, we should we should be paying second window prices. I think in a way, what we're more interested in is moving forward. Will they make material available on a simultaneous window. Do you think they will? I think so. I think already we've heard from the lights of Lionsgate that they will. Yeah, so I think that's coming. It mightn't come with all shows. As I say, I don't think that would happen with The Mandalorian. Um, you know, I don't think it would happen with The Crown. But but I but I do think it, it may well happen for certain shows, yeah. It's certainly- because uh, you as a buyer, I mean, you know, BBC, ourselves, France Television, NRK, you know, whatever, other other channels around the world, we, we don't want to be just showing people's hand-me-downs. You know, we, we're, we're still interested in first-run content. Um, and if something's been on a streamer that's available in a lot of homes for 18 months, okay, it might have been under the radar and we'll do a lot of science and data analysis around that. But, you know, we're still in the business of trying to buy first-run content that hasn't been seen before. Well, of course, because, I mean, you know, people have paid a lot of money for these subscriptions and if they see a show popping up on RTE they'll be like well why would I want to watch that I've seen it two years ago well there's a, yeah exactly there's a touch of that um you know now the other thing of course that's really important is that we need to get a proper set of rights because there was a time you know up to maybe three or four years ago when you know free-to-air broadcasts were often being offered well listen you you, you can have a relatively modest digital window maybe maximum five episodes in 30 days catch up that is no longer acceptable to most broadcasters certainly has been acceptable to RTE for the last at least two and a half years and same with the BBC so we need video on demand rights for our players for our broadcast players our BVODs you know the RTE player in our case iPlayer and BBC's case NRK play SVT play in the case of Norway and Sweden so you know that's equally as important so it's not just saying oh this is available to show on your TV channel we need digital rights that's hugely important yeah the the other element to this is it'll be interesting to monitor how buyers react to this concept being made available again because they might turn around and say well look you kept that stuff to yourself and now we've gone another way we've got a whole other content strategy with local language productions or stuff from Europe or Australia or wherever and you know what our audience are happy with it so we're just going to stick with that I agree with that actually I mean I think one of the things that happened during COVID was we looked to Australia because if you remember, Australia wasn't actually affected by COVID for almost the first year, and they managed to contain it really well. So production continued in Australia, and we started acquiring Australian content, things like The Secret She Keeps, like BBC did as well, Secret Bridesmaids business, and we found that the Irish audience really warmed to these Australian dramas. The production values were every bit as good as anything you see from the UK or the US. Um, The sensibility in Australia, the culture in Australia is actually in many ways closer to Britain and Ireland uh, than the American culture. Um, you know, they have cups of tea and they celebrate Christmas and all that, albeit on the beach. So all that kind of stuff. So we suddenly said, well, you know, that we're still interested in that stuff. And, and just because Americans are going to make US network shows available again, that doesn't mean they're going to be any more interested in anything else. I think the other thing that be, that happened during COVID is that we suddenly started working from um, our home office, which, you know, which was a great level because you know previously you'd go to the LA screenings you're you know you're taken in a golf buggy to you know to an amazing screening room that the head of production for Warner Brothers or Paramount meets you and greets you you're given a lovely lunch and you're everything's shown on a magnificent screen 
And, you know, that kind of put some of those shows on a pedestal. Now, obviously, as buyers, we always had to kind of take that pedestal away and and put what we saw in a living room in Cork or Galway in in our heads. Um, But actually, you know, when COVID happened, even the US majors had to send their screeners to us as an online stream or download onto our laptops and actually became a great leveler because suddenly you're just watching something on its merits on a laptop or on an iPad. So it became a great leveler. And I think, so the studios are now back selling content and, you know, they're back at, you know, uh, but but also the other thing that's happened, as you know, is, is the London screenings at the end of February have mushroomed, you know, and, you know, selling a great range of content. Uh, and I mean, this year it became almost impossible. You needed to be Jesus to be at all the screenings because, you know, there were times when there were three screenings on at the same time. I mean, I had my colleague, Brian, my deputy with me, and, you know, we would often go our separate ways. But I mean, e- even so, we didn't see everything that was on show at the London screen. Now, thankfully, most of the studios screening there, and they're mainly British distributors, albeit some of the Americans did as well. They sent you links. Sorry, we missed you. You know, here's a link to our shows and whatever. But I mean, the London screenings um, in many ways has a, has a richer array of content than the LA screening, because the LA screenings is, is the big, huge US majors, and, and, and they are huge and they have some excellent content. But the London screenings, you know, you 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 had a range of, you know, initially it was just British, but you know, with the, you know, with, with the BBC kind of launching it, um, and it was all three media, and you know, it was it was it was, you know, and then it became Banerjee and and, and ITV Studios. But now you have companies like Red Arrow screening at the London screenings and about premium content, mm-hmm. and then the smaller British companies like Abacus, the new players, Cineflex. So actually, you know, what I would say is all, all of these markets. And screenings which you know there was a time when i would say that the la screenings was the most important market of the year for me i would say now in many ways they're all equally important because we never know when we're going to find that content that works for us because content is being commissioned all year round uh, and and you know and because we're much more open to the content it could come from australia could come from new zealand could come from canada could come from the uk indeed it could come from continental europe because increasingly we're seeing dramas shot in english in continental europe as well do you think some buyers might be going to LA with full bellies already, as it were? They've already spent some of their budget on stuff that they've seen at London screenings. Yes, but I mean, they'd be foolish to have spent all their money because, you know, last year I did pick up a couple of really good shows at the LA screening. So I picked up Colin from Accounts, yeah. which is on the BBC now, and it, it is a great little comedy drama. It's very funny. You know, yeah. it's genuinely funny. You know, it yeah. makes you laugh. And interestingly, an Australian show shown at the LA screenings. Yeah. So again, it shows the great leveller. That was the show. And I suddenly saw everybody putting their phones away, not answering their emails and just having a laugh. And you could, you know, if you were the salespeople for Paramount, you suddenly, oh, gosh, there's going to be some interest in this. And there has been, which is great because it deserves it because it's a great show. And we also picked up the David E. Kelly show, Love and Death, which is an HBO Max show uh, Warner Brothers was selling. Um, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. The LA screenings is really important. Um, and it's great. It's a great opportunity to meet senior people as well. Uh, for a lot of Europeans, when actually you're not in the same time zone as Europe. So, you know, if you're in the London screens, you know, people are constantly being pulled away to emails and phone calls and stuff like that. Whereas actually, once you get to about 10 o'clock in the morning in LA, it's six o'clock 
in London and Dublin, and it's seven o'clock in Paris and Berlin. And actually, then you get access to talk to some really interesting people when they're not being distracted. It's a really important networking event as well. Sure. It'd be interesting for you out in America, because obviously everyone's talking about the writer's strike over there. And yeah. um, what, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have? I mean, will the US studios be hurt or have they got strategies in place to deal with it? I think they're not going to be hurt in the short term, but I think they will be hurt in the medium term, because my understanding is what we're going to see at the LA screening, quite a lot of that will already have been written and produced. But I think series that say network series that may, may end up going to 13 episodes or 22 episodes, they're certainly not going to have written that volume of episodes. So the, the series will be curtailed. Um, I think the studios have in recent past been acquiring, you know, studios and production companies in Australia and New Zealand and the UK and in Canada. And I suppose they, they, they'll they be mining those production companies, particularly if they're not in any way affiliated to, to Writers Guild. So, you know, I was there the last time there was a writer's strike and it was a pretty thin LA screenings. But at that time, they were the studios were entirely dependent on American only content. They're not as dependent now that they, they are a lot of them are global players. How do you think the writer's strike might affect your job in particular? Um, I, I you know, it, it it probably won't be any worse than COVID. There may be in the medium term a reduction in the volume of content I can buy, particularly from North America. And therefore I will have to, you know, go beyond. But I have been doing that anyway. So I think we are, compared to the last writer's strike, we are less dependent on US content than we were. It is an important component. I mean, we we bought some of the best US series in recent years, things like Killing Eve, Handmaid's Tale. You know, if those shows couldn't be made, yeah, we, we would have holes, some holes in our schedule. We'd have to fill them elsewhere. I suppose that, that there's an opportunity in that instance for, for other countries and other distribution companies. Is there anything you're going out there specifically looking for, Dermot? Are you, is there any kind of content you're, that's on your list? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've heard that Yellowstone is coming to an end. We've, we've very successfully shown Yellowstone for several years. So that kind of um, strong family saga, very high production values... I, I need to find a replacement for that. I mean, we were lucky enough to get into Yellowstone very early. So we ended up having a simultaneous window with Paramount Plus. So, um, but but something of that scale. So, you know, with, um, you know, a, a, a just high production values. Also, I mean, my understanding is Handmaid's Tale. This is the last season. So again, we'll be looking for a replacement for that. Um, we had the last season last year of Killing Eve. So there's a number of shows that we would have bought from the States that uh, we have holes in the schedule for. They don't necessarily need to have come or, or come from the States, but actually, why not? I mean, it's still, a, it's still a powerhouse of production. So Sure. And what kind of US content doesn't work for RTE audiences, Dermot? Okay. Um, in recent years, shall we say, the more old-fashioned crime procedurals, which were the, the bread and butter of so many people's schedules, you know, around the world and also on the US networks, those shows that would go to 22 episodes, you, you, you know, like The Mentalist, CSI, NCIS, those shows are not doing the business they once did. I think people are looking um, less at kind of murder or crime of the week type shows and are are more interested in high production value event series so short run series so those longer running shows are no longer working for us 
And then there's certain genres that, irrespective of any writer strike, irrespective of, of the change in viewing habits, have never worked in Ireland, which is anything to do with sci-fi, the occult, paranormal. It just doesn't work in Ireland. Um, I think Irish people, we're real people. We like real, you know, we like real dilemmas. Um, we also have a, in terms of who chooses what drama is being watched, a more female dominated audience. And, you know, particularly this is generalization, but but women like real characters. So if somebody has superpowers or can turn into a ghost or anything like that, you remove the jeopardy, you remove the drama because somebody has those powers. So so in that regard, you know, Irish people like real dramas, but real people and, and also, with, with you know, families. So, you know, even years ago, The Sopranos was really popular in Ireland because it was about a family. You know, so you can see the success of Succession. I mean, we don't have it. It's obviously it's, it's an HBO show, so it's on Sky. But I think those kinds of dramas which relate to, to 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 family and family dynamics are really popular. Sure. And on RTE, I mean, what percentage of US content do you have and how does that compare to how it was 10 or 15 years ago? Oh, in terms of series, considerably less. Um, we, we have, as I say, pivoted to probably more UK content. There are more opportunities because you know if you think of the uk compared to 20 years ago there there are you know channel five are producing a lot of drama and even in the last five years channel five once they lost big brother they put a lot of money into dramas so a lot of channel five dramas available channel four are doing dramas uk tv are doing dramas you know paramount you know uk paramount plus uk are doing so there's a lot more uk content available for us and as i say we're looking more at australia uh we're looking at canada and um, we've just completed a co-production with TV New Zealand with my co-pro hat on so um yeah we are less reliant on US drama we still buy US movies we still have movie slots we've less movie slots in prime time than we used to but we still have matinee slots we still have you know late night slots we still have slots around high days and holidays and you know at the end of the day the majority of the world's most popular movies still come out of the states Dermot Horan speaking with Neil Beatty. Finally, live from Content LA, MGM's Chris Brierton and Michael Wright spoke to Jordan Pinto about their content strategy for US cable net and streamer MGM Plus, now part of Amazon. Uh, my name's Jordan Pinto. I am the North American editor for C21. Uh, we are thrilled to be here for this session. Um, we are going to be talking about content strategies at MGM Plus. We have Michael Wright, who is the head of MGM Plus, and then Chris Brierton, who is the... And Chris, your one's a slightly trickier one. Okay. The uh, VP of Corporate Strategy, Prime Video and Studios, and the head of MGM Unscripted and MGM Plus. I think I got that right? That's fair, yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and MGM Plus, um, as I'm sure everyone knows, is um, a premium cable network and streaming service, and previously known as Epix. Um, there is a boatload of incredible stuff uh, that's happening at MGM Plus at the moment. Um, and so in this session, we're going to talk about some of the content strategies, um, the domestic rebrand of MGM Plus, um, the international relaunch, um, how MGM's position um, is kind of being expanded and boosted within, a within Amazon, opportunities for international partnerships, uh, and the future vision for the service. Chris and Michael, your, your roles, I think it would, it would be helpful if you were to just explain your roles slightly and just how those fit into, um, into what you're doing at MGM+. Plus. Um, and I, I'm not sure who, maybe it makes sense to start yeah, with I'll you, Michael. I, I, I uh, do what is traditionally sort of understood as a head of programming job, but also head of marketing. I basically oversee all the content. 
what we make, what we buy, and how we sell it, and then the brand as well. So I'm, I suppose, head of creative. Chris is the smarter businessman. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, Michael is the, the sort of you know, backbone of, of MGM+. Michael and I uh, joined this, this uh, endeavor together in 2018, and uh, you know, Michael has overseen the service pr- previously known as Epics, now rebranded, and really more than that, it's really a full-blown relaunch of a service both domestically and globally. And Michael's been the ethos and brand uh, sort of ambassador and center of that from the beginning. Um, my job is really more of a broad sweeping uh, corporate strategy job at Amazon. And one of the, the initiatives that we're really getting behind is the MGM Plus and making sure that this service and this brand um, is available to consumers all over the world. And so yeah, that's how we really whack it up. Um, let's get into the rebrand then. It was obviously, it was, it was a big undertaking and I think a, a really important moment for, for Epics, and which became MGM+. Plus. Um, do you think of this as a rebrand that was more cosmetic in nature or has this been accompanied by a kind of broader strategic overhaul about the way you think about the service? Well, it's really, it's, it's both. And the truth of the rebrand is that we began the rebrand almost three or four years ago. I went to Chris in 2018 when it was Epics. And you're always looking for ways to refresh and energize your service. And Chris and I both agreed that the, the thing that was right in front of us was the MGM brand. Because Epics itself hadn't really had a brand. It was a movieplex service. So if you actually went back and looked, in 2018, we changed the entire color scheme. We changed the messaging. We did everything but change the name. So the rebrand began back then. And then when Amazon came in uh, and bought MGM and were wonderfully enthusiastic about this service, we all said right away, the single best thing we could do right now to add that bit of rocket fuel is to go ahead and put the cherry on top and give us the MGM name. I will tell you this, MGM is a top 10 worldwide entertainment brand. I'm not making that up or guessing. That is a researched fact. It is one of the most respected and beloved brands in the entertainment space in the world. So for us to be able to take that and apply it to our service has been a huge gift. The thing about the MGM brand is it's not just a well-known name. It's actually a name that means something. So what we did with, with MGM, and this goes back to four years ago at Epics, we began reshaping our content, the series we make, the series we buy, the movies we buy, all of it is, is bought and curated very specifically to the MGM brand, which when you do the research, and this won't surprise any of you, consumers associate MGM with high-quality entertainment, with stars, cinematic, uh, filmmaking, all these things that you love. I always joke and I say, you could spend a, a five years and a billion dollars and you wouldn't have the brand awareness and the brand trust that this name gives you. So what you're going to see when we relaunched the brand in January, this was one of our workhorses to really communicate to people, we are leaning in to the MGM name. We want consumers to think, if I want to go see something MGM, I'm going to go to MGM+. Plus. Um, when we were chatting previously, so I, I think you said it's been about 100 days in the U.S. since the rebrand, and then the international rebrand um, is much newer. May 12th. Okay. <laughs> very, very new. Very new. Um, what, what have you seen from the... Uh, is, have you got any kind of data to, to, to share about whether, you know, how yes. the rebrand has worked so far? Um, well, the, the, a couple of really key data points, and I'm really learning to lean into data points in, in, our, in our new world. Um, we were at 2% awareness as Epics, and we're at 36% awareness now. That's an extraordinary jump. 
in in a hundred days to go from basically unknown to people have heard about it and you, and you and then you see it as well in the subgrowth i don't think we're not we're not talking about numbers but we're seeing a really significant and, and remarkable burst in growth since january between the rebrand the premiere of Godfather of Harlem, which is really our signature show. It's a, such an on-brand show. It's been a huge hit for us. Big sub driver. That premiered in January. And then we followed that up right after with Spy Among Friends, which was another uh, big critically acclaimed show. Uh, and then right now we've just premiered From, which is our second biggest show. So it's been a really nice jump to the beginning of the year. We're on pace if you want to talk about it. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think when you look at it, and Michael's being a little humble, those three shows were our first quarter shows, all of which rated in the high 90s on Rotten Tomatoes, drove tremendous uh, awareness and subscriber growth along with the MGM brand. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, as Michael said, is that the MGM brand is emotive. I mean, most people see it. It, it, it actually has an emotional... Uh, triggers our emotional reaction that you're you're about to witness you know quality entertainment and what it does from a standpoint of the marketing is when you look at the crowded marketplace and you look at all the tiles up on the screen MGM belongs there it it makes sense you look at the studio iconic names you expect to see MGM there and now it's there and what we've seen is really just with one quarter of programming in the U.S. and literally one weekend of programming overseas we're seeing very significant growth you know 15 20 25 percent in a very very short period of time. Um, and it's, you know, it's becoming one of the top channels on the Prime Video Channel's marketplace literally overnight. And it's really because of the high-quality entertainment, the MGM movie library, the great new shows, and quite frankly, the brand. So we're, we're really, really pleased by things. Yeah. Um, there's also, a, you know, a very important international piece to this, too. Um, MGM Plus, as you said, May 12th. Um, I believe it's, it's Germany, Austria, Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands where, yeah. where the service is right. rebranded. Um, are you thinking any differently about how you, how you look at those markets now that you you kind of have have the push of, of the of the rebrand behind you and um, you know a, any new investments that you're looking to make or you know more interested in co-production with those markets like anything you can tell us on that front yeah I think that what we did in those markets in particular is that we did a partnership um, with Lionsgate and they were shuttering their services in those jurisdictions and we um, we saw an opportunity because the con they had great content and we could the concept of putting their great content together with what we had to offer really would create a powerful offering and and really what this signals is the support that Amazon is providing to the service. If you look at it, when Michael and I went to, right after we closed, one of the first things we did is we went to leadership and said, we really think this is a rocket ship. Just It's a, it's a sleeping giant. It, Michael, your quote, I'll let you give it because it's, it's the best. We one. have felt for a very long time we are the best service that a lot of people have never heard of. And we really believe that, and, and, and Mike Hopkins in particular really leaned into that and said, let's do this. And, and we built you know, a supercharged plan for MGM Plus, and Amazon leaned in. And it was, it was you know, started with the domestic. We, we announced the rebrand and the relaunch back in September, but the, the international side of it was always in the works, and it really was the ability to jumpstart it with the Lionsgate transaction to get us going faster, quite frankly, ahead of pace. Um, and now that we're seeing the early successes, literally it's been not even a week, um, it's really a great proof of concept. And so um, we're going to look to build more and expand the, that breadth of service in more jurisdictions um, and then ultimately lean in uh, as a global service is one of the things we are doing as well as we're bringing the two services together. They've been traditionally run independently as a truly one global service. Um, how do you think about the development process? I think in January, um, MGM announced um, nine, nine projects that were in development, um, one, of, one or two of which have already been sub subsequently greenlit. Um, one of those was the Ocean of Emperor Park. 
Um, maybe this is a better question for you, Michael. Yeah, how do you think about the development slate? Do you have a, a big development slate? Do you like to you know, keep it curated? Like, what, what is the approach? Uh, we we uh, very much on purpose keep a fairly small development slate. I've never believed in developing things that you don't think you want to make one day. So I think uh, our development ratio is, uh, I would say, among the lowest in the business, probably two to one. If we buy your show, we're not kidding around. And our, you know, but also because we have such a clear brand focus, we're, we're pretty disciplined. We've always had to be. We, you know, MGM Plus is the scrappy underdog, and we love that. We lean into that. You know, it's a lot of big dogs out there, and we kind of love being the, the, the insurgent, you know, coming up on the outside with really great content and a great brand. So when we buy stuff, we never buy haphazardly. So we buy to the MGM brand, which I've mentioned already, is it's cinematic. It's entertainment first. It's star driven. It's we love the familiar surprise. That's a phrase we use a lot, which is a story like a Billy the Kid. You know who Billy the Kid is? Godfather of Harlem. It's a gangster drama. But if you come to both of those, they're surprises. Billy the Kid is the immigrant story in the guise of Billy the Kid. Godfather of Harlem is a story about racism in the '60s that is also a gangster drama. So whether it's being a familiar surprise or being on brand with the MGM Plus brand, very very disciplined about what we buy, and ultimately and always. In addition to those two things, it's about the talent. You know, if you're if you're buying Godfather of Harlem, you're buying it because it's Chris Brancato and Forrest Whitaker and Paul Eckstein. Yeah. If you're buying Billy the Kid, it's because Michael Hurst is writing it, right? So uh, we don't buy a lot, but we know exactly what we're buying and why. Um, what about the unscripted mandate? Um, yeah, we love it. I'm glad. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, unscripted, we did because, to be honest, early on we just had to find ways to make more content, you know, for less. And then we found this really great groove. Um, internally, we have always described the MGM Plus unscripted brand as sort of uh, Rolling Stone, which Rolling Stone used to be pop culture through a journalistic lens. And we've really landed on a couple of areas that have been very successful for us. Music docs, some true crime docs, pop culture docs. So Laurel Canyon was Emmy nominated, Women Who Rock, the story of AM Records, or Fall River. Right now we're out with Amityville, which has done really great for us. So again, and if you look at them, they're all part of that MGM Plus ethos. They're, they're cinematic by themselves. They're hugely entertaining. They're accessible and smart. It's become a big part of our business. How many slots you have for unscripted a year? Like, is is that a quantifiable? Not, not quantifiable usually. Level? We make you know four or five a year, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's always flexible. But it doesn't. It, we don't. It doesn't really work that way. I mean, Michael's always looking for high quality content that fits the brand ethos, and uh, and we make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are there any gaps in your slate right now that you're looking at? Um, you know, there's a room, room full of producers um, primarily. Are there any content needs and areas that you would like to fill? Well, there's always content needs, but I would say that luckily, because we've had, and this needs to be said, not just being a cheerleader, we've had such incredible support. We're programmed through really next spring. We have Domina, which is uh, it's season two. We're in from right now, then Domina, which is our Roman drama, comes back uh, early summer. Then we have The Winter King. We just announced this big, beautiful King Arthur story from Bad Wolf that'll premiere later in the summer. Then Billy the Kid, one of our biggest hits last year, that'll premiere in October and then Belgravia after that. And then Hotel Cocaine, we just, this is from all the people that created um, Godfather of Harlem. It's this really great, smart, sort of narco-trafficking, but a lot more than that, uh, crime drama set in Miami in the late 70s. That'll premiere in the new year. And then Emperor of Ocean Park from uh, John Wells' team will come out in March. So we're, you know, we're kind of on a roll right now. And then we don't necessarily have holes, but we're always looking. So if you have something that's on brand and it, you know, we're very talent focused. 
So the, our filters are very, very consistent. Is it, is it MGM Plus? Does it have a great show in it? Is there a great voice behind it? Is it a familiar surprise? And if it is, you know, call us. Mm -hmm. um, another question here. Um, will MGM Plus consider non-MGM owned IP um, when you are um, looking at shows? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I, I think it's really about the ethos of the brand and the consumers, if it fits the mold. I mean, we, we have, you know, Michael and we're, we're out there buying motion pictures and, and curating the, uh, the programming lineup with third-party product all the time. Somebody asked me, why, come on, MGM Plus, why is it MGM Plus? I said, MGM Plus other people's content too. <laughs> it's not complicated. <laughs> so... Obviously, now that MGM is, is owned by Amazon, you know, that's it's a very significant um, piece of the puzzle for you. Will you be producing more shows as a result of, you know, now that, like, do you have plans to slightly increase the size of the slate each year? Or, like, I also get the sense that you, you do like to be curated and, like, you're not going to try and double or triple the number of shows just for the sake of it. Might we see a steady increase? Well, Amazon's already done that. They've been, and they've been incredible. That's a company with enormous resources and scale and reach and the ability to unlock, as Chris said a moment ago, um, we're like this sleeping giant, and now we have Amazon behind us. So uh, it's pretty powerful rocket fuel. They already gave us a little more to add a little more. But to your point, we're never going to be the service with, you know, a thousand series. There's a, there's a sweet spot where you have enough new content every week to keep um, people subscribing or renewing. And I think we're almost there. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we've just always, when Mike and I sat down to, to really start what this could be and, and as I said, the effective rebrand that happened back in 2018, is we were always gonna grow responsibly. We were always going to be, keep our head above water, grow responsibly, make sure that our, our content and marketing aspirations did not exceed our subscriber, our attainable subscriber goals. And so we, we maintain that, that sort of measured responsible growth trajectory. Yeah. Um, kind of maybe a follow up. Does the relationship with Amazon, has it had any impact on your decision making um, and the budgets or are you, just kind of the same, but a little bit better. It, it, it's, it, it's really just more support. At the end of the day, the, the recognition was that, as I said, this was the best service, as Michael said, the best service no one had heard of. And with the support and resources that Amazon could put behind us, both domestically and globally, you know, continuing to let the company and the great leadership team they have do their thing, for lack of a better word, just with their support. So I don't know if, if you disagree, Michael, but it's really just been really encouraging us to keep doing what we're doing just at a slightly higher level with slightly more resources. No, I totally agree. I, I mean, it sound like an Amazon homer, and I'm really not doing that. They've been incredibly supportive. It's been everything. Look, we had a problem before they bought us. We just, awareness. We didn't have the, the resources. We didn't have the tools. Now we do, and they've put them to work. So it's been kind of great. And as Chris said, the process is still working the way it did, just with an additional layer of what I would describe as responsible and, and thoughtful oversight. But no, it's been, um, you know, kind of wonderful. Um, anytime that there is a plus symbol in the name of, yeah. of, a, of, a, of a streaming service or a, a platform, I think people assume that cost plus is also the, the kind of model that, um, that is perhaps kind of implied also in, in that. Um, I think MGM works in a you, you're kind of more open to different kinds of deal models um, with producers. Are you able to talk about that? We're, we're, we're very on, on purpose, very nimble. As you know, Chris and I are both kind of saying the same thing, but just say it more overtly. We've had to do a lot more with a little bit less. I mean, that's, I think it's been a benefit to us. We've learned how to program the service and create a beautiful premium product 
by being responsible around it. So that also requires you to be very nimble and make any deals that make sense. So we own a lot of our own content more and more every year, but we also do co-production deals. We've done straight license deals. We've done acquisition deals. We kind of go where we have to go to program the service. It's very bespoke. And I think that's important for a room full of producers to understand, which is we will do the deals that make sense for the service. And now the fact that the service is a more global service does not mean that everything we do will be a global takedown of rights. In fact, we look at the different markets very, very carefully to decide what's going to work and resonate in those particular markets. And so we may do domestic only deals. We may do deals where we take down some international territories. We may do global deals, but it's going to be very, very bespoke based on the additional, based on the piece of content in question. So we're very, very uh, nimble and flexible in that regard, and we need to be. Yeah. Um, I have to ask about the strike as well. Um, obviously, you know, you can't drive anywhere in LA without, uh, without seeing people picketing. Um, how, how do you expect the, the, the ongoing strike to potentially disrupt your, your, your pipeline, either in development or production? Um, we'll be okay. I mean, look, I'm a, a cagey old veteran, emphasizing old, and I've, so I've been through a few of these strikes. It's always disruptive, but you know, I think that there are really good, smart people on both sides trying to work it out, and they'll get to a fair and equitable outcome. And, and as always happens, when we get to the solution, there will be this burst of creative energy that has been pent up during this work stoppage. So it'll work out. Um, are you open to both miniseries and anthology series too when you're looking at shows? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, we don't have any, any sort of uh, mandates around it has to be returning, has to be limited, has to be... In fact, I'd love to do a comedy. We haven't found one yet. Comedy's hard. Comedy is really, really hard. Not that drama isn't hard, but drama tends to be a little bit more universal. Uh, we've said for three years, we're looking for a comedy. Just haven't found it yet. But yeah, we're open to all for any piece of content that I think is going to speak to that MGM Plus audience that we have. Um, we're open to it. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just drill, drill down on the comedy thing then. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of a, would you call it like a, a defined goal of yours, or you'd love to find something for, yeah, for the Yeah, because service? you're always like, in this game, you have an addressable market. You have an audience that you know you have, and you want to always program to them, but you're also always trying to invite new viewers in. And a comedy is an audience that we're not serving right now. So to find a hit, what's our Ted Lasso, right? Mm -hmm. What's our Sunny in Philadelphia? What's our adult, smart, uh, but broadly appealing comedy? Uh, and we haven't found it yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, someone asked a question here. Um, why do you think horror has decreased and crime increased? Um, in life or on TV? <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the question doesn't specify. Um, let's, let's, let's go with TV. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that they had. I mean, yeah. we, we've, um, horror is definitely resonating for a lot of people right now. It's funny, you know, and I'm, I'm a TV person these days, not a movie guy, but horror still works theatrically, and horror works beautifully on our platform. Yeah. We've, we've had a, we had a deal with Blumhouse. Uh, we, we're, we have, we've had horror from Chapel Wait. Um, I don't know, maybe the obvious answer is, you know, drama is always meant to be cathartic. People watch a TV show so they can work out their life fears. Well, we've been through some horrific times lately, so maybe that's why you know, that, that genre is working so well. Yeah. True crime is still working. It's just true crime has gone to the uh, documentary space. If you look closely, what used to be the, right, the, the miniseries world, remember they used to make, I used to do that for a living, we used to make, you know, three Amy Fisher stories in one month. Some of you don't know what that is. That was a true crime story back in the 90s. Yeah. That's now gone to the doc space, and a lot of us have had great success with true crime in, in, in the doc world. Yeah. Um, are you looking at all at non-English language um, productions currently or potentially in the future? I think we're open to all of it. And, and as you said, particularly when we look to the local jurisdictions overseas, 
Local originals work. Uh, they do. If you look at any of the competitive platforms, having a broad set of local originals that appeal to that audience specifically, ideally with the ability to go global with those, uh, is really important, and that's something we'll be looking at for sure. Also, I would say that audiences have become so much more open to foreign language in the U.S. I mean, you go look at 000, you look at, you know, there's so many shows now that we, we did a show, War of the Worlds, with uh, Fox International. It was a big hit for us. It was 40% in French. You know, we were like debating at one point, well, should this be 38% or 40%? Audiences are just, they've adapted to it and they love it, which I think is kind of a great thing. Opens up the, the aperture a little bit. Yeah. Um, we're only 100 days into the US rebrand and only a few days into the, um, into the international rebrand. When you look at the, the really long, long term here, when you look at, you know, I don't know whether this would be a, a five year or a 10 year plan, and I, and I don't know how you specifically think about some of those uh, those kind of time horizons. Um, how do you see the future of, of the service playing out, and what are some of the goals and the benchmarks that you would uh, kind of see as defining success? I think it's sort of the same for everybody: continued subgrowth, continued growing growth and engagement, and it's you know the content. Are you are you relevant? Are you making shows that are becoming part of the conversation? Um, like if, if you live in my world, you try not to think more than six months ahead because you're always like, what's the next show? Like you can have a Godfather of Harlem that crushes. You're like, that's great. What's on now? You know, so I, I would leave Chris to answer the long-term uh, uh, goals question. Yeah, and when you look at it, the, the service is, is primed with its name, with its content, uh, with its great library, with its history, to be one of those services that you're just going to have. It's, it's there, we're now with the support of Amazon, we're sitting there and we look to the future, and this is a service, particularly, quite frankly, we've always basically focused on this being a value addition. Like, the, the service in the United States is $5.99, and in most of Europe, it's either $3.99 or $4.99 euro. It's a very, very good value for consumers for what they get. And what you're gonna see is us continuing to lean into that, the programming offerings being slightly more robust, expanding in a responsible way, and it's gonna be there. And, and that brand is gonna to continue to drive people to subscribe to that service and feel really good about it. Um, and I think the, kind of the partnership with Amazon is really gonna ensure that we're, you know, we sustain those, those things uh, and our general responsibility in the way we've, we program the service. And quite frankly, one other thing that I really wanted to echo is as the service becomes more and more ubiquitous, as the awareness grows, look back at the shows that debuted last year or the year before. They're really, really strong. And not a lot of people have been consuming the service traditionally, and so I think they're gonna discover it for the first time because if you look at the critical acclaim of the shows that have been on the platform, they're really strong. You know, an example of that is we were able to put from season one up on Amazon Prime, and it became the number three show in the US on Prime. That's a huge benefit to us to be able to use the resources and the reach of Prime to build the awareness for a show like that. Um, the other thing I should have said when you were talking about the future, um, beyond growth and, and everything else, is just leaning more and more into that MGM brand. We know that is the differentiator. That's what makes it distinctive. So hopefully more and more MGM branded content, more of the MGM movies, just we want people to say, if it's MGM, I should go look at MGM+. Plus. Um, is advertising part of the future roadmap? Um, I think at the, at the moment you said that there's no, there's no AVOD tier um, on MGM+. Plus. Um, do you have you know, thoughts on whether advertising uh, is an important part of growing? Not that I know of, but I, <laughs> I think, look, the business is constantly changing, and what consumers want and expect is, uh, I, I, you know, you shouldn't try to predict that. You should just observe it. Right now there are no plans to add an advertising tier to MGM+. Plus. Um, you know, it's a premium service, and part of what we sell to people is, a, is a commercial-free environment, but you know, you never know. 
Um, someone asks, how did Rogue Heroes um, perform for you? They Wonderful. said, amazing acquisition, huge congratulations. Oh, whoever asked that, thank you. Steve Knight is brilliant. And if you're like me and you're a fan of those old sort of like 60s Kelly's Heroes and the Devil's Brigade and the Dirty Dozens, this was Steve Knight's riff on that sort of bad boys doing good things, World War II drama, and he crushed it. The cast was amazing. Jack O'Connell, Connor Swindells, Alfie. And I'm sound, if I'm sounding like I'm selling it, I am. You should watch it because Steve Knight's brilliant. Uh, and we are doing season two. Um, so it did very well for us and we couldn't have been happier. And I'm, I'm in a, another show in the, in the 90s in Rotten Tomatoes, which is all the credit to Steve Knight and good for us for having it. <laughs> um, in terms of your releasing model, um, obviously a lot we see in the, in the streaming world is, or well, some of it is, is released all at once. I think things are starting to maybe change now. Um, what, what's, yeah, it was so funny when Netflix began to say about a year ago, oh, you know, we're considering this new thing of releasing shows weekly. I'm like, you mean like television? <laughs> <laughs> but look, I don't, we don't have a thousand hours of content. We've got, you know, a hundred plus hours of really thoughtfully, carefully curated content. And you bet I'm going to release it weekly. We'll sometimes do two episodes to get people into it. But then, look, I, I want you to come back. I want you to come back. And there's also, you know, for some of us, there is the fun. I'm a huge Succession fan. It's, I look forward to Sunday nights. I'm like, what in the hell's going to happen this week? You know, that, that's what used to happen with TV and water cooler TV shows. It became sort of a community experience. And I think binging is great for some shows, but it's a different experience. Um, how can producers best pitch you or get on your radar? Man, I wish I had an easy answer for that. You call, write email. I think it's all about the content. We're pretty good at, you know, at looking at what you're pitching and being able to say that, again, is it on brand? Is it MGM Plus, the way I've described it? Uh, is there great talent involved? And is it a familiar surprise? And then I'll say this lastly, because I know we're out of time. You know, we, we go out of our way to say to people, this is what we know we want. Please bring us this. But one of my mentors was a guy named Brandon Tartikoff, who, if you don't know him, was one of the best programmers ever back in the day. And Brandon once said to me, tell people what you want, but then also always say this, please feel free to bring me the thing I don't know I want. Just explain to me why I want it. So um, we're coming to the end here, so any, any parting words maybe... Chris, I'm a, I'm a I, I just think that um, Michael and I really want to encourage all of you to lean into MGM Plus, both in terms of thinking about us as a potential programming home, obviously as a consumer and a viewer, we really challenge you to experience what, we've, what we're delivering because it's really, really high quality, very high value. And again, we're going to be around for a while because we have great backing from our partners at Amazon and we lean into that MGM brand because we know everyone loves it. I go what Chris is saying and I would just say this, if you haven't seen it, <clears throat> check it out. Seven day free trials. Doesn't hurt you. <laughs> Okay, we will wrap it up there, yep. A round of applause for Michael Wright and Chris Brereton. Thank you. Chris Brereton and Michael Wright speaking with Jordan Pinto at C21's Content LA yesterday. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the event next week. You can tune in to C21 FM each day for new interviews from Monday or catch up again next Friday in the podcast. And don't forget to stay up to date with all the latest developments in the international TV business by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.